Hello, and welcome to the Digital Health Leaders Podcast, where we bring the best of the best in digital health leadership to you. I'm Russ Branzell, President and CEO of the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, or CHIME, and the host of this podcast. These are truly unprecedented times for our industry and our healthcare leaders. These leaders are doing everything they can to support our frontline caregivers and guide their organizations through some of the most tumultuous times in modern history. Today, we have one of those special leaders with us. Hey, today we have a great longtime friend of Chime. He's, I don't know if he's ever missed an event uh, as long as I've known him, which is well over a decade. Uh, he's a longtime CIO, but moved into healthcare space uh, in, in maybe a little different way than some others that are out there. He's also a teacher at the College of Public Health Department of uh, Health Management and Policy at the University of Iowa. Uh, he's been in many different leadership roles across healthcare, health IT, uh, and now really helps us drive one of the most critical functions in all of healthcare, and that's getting data where it needs to be through one of our HIEs. So it's an absolute pleasure to have a dear friend of mine, man of chimes, Stephen Stewart, the President and CEO of the Iowa Health Information Network in Des Moines, Iowa. Welcome to the program, Stephen. Russ, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to join you. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, brings back fond memories, some funny ones, and uh, so I enjoy it. Glad to be here. Well, great. Uh, as we always ask, first and foremost, in these times, how are you? How's your family doing? How are the great people of Iowa doing during these difficult times during COVID and just so many other issues for our country right now? Well, you're right. There are so many issues going on right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, for me personally, my wife and I uh, are doing just fine and we've had no problems. For my extent, my kids, my daughter and her husband have both been through testing positive, but for the most part, they were principally asymptomatic or very, very mild symptoms. And then a week or 10 days that things were pretty much behind them. Their kids never uh, contracted it. They continued to test negative. My son's family's doing fine. Um, Iowa has been up and down as the national uh, media would indicate. We're, we're certainly experiencing a surge right now. Um, there are uh, concerns on everybody's part about um, not the availability of necessarily of, of uh, hospital beds and, and ventilators, but the distribution. The metro, Iowa is principally, there's 3.2 million people in the state and it's principally rural. There's 117 hospitals in the state, um, but the metropolitan areas are really, really at or very near capacity. But there is, if you look at it globally statewide, there's, there's capacity in other areas, but you know, it, when you're affected or when it's your family, you don't care what is going on in Cherokee, Iowa. You care what's happening in the community you're in. And uh, that's, that is a, uh, uh, an issue of concern to everybody. So, you know, I would say Iowa is doing fairly well, um, but we've got a long ways to go. And obviously everybody's gonna welcome the vaccine when it uh, becomes available and hopefully move forward from there. But it's certainly been an interesting year. <laughs> yes, it has. Interesting now seems to be uh, an understatement for what we've gone through for this last year. 
Now, you know, I'll use it interesting another way. You have an interesting career path. It is not the traditional go start as an analyst, work your way up to CIO. You, you've had a little bit different route, and maybe even there's a little rumor out there that you didn't even really like technology at all. So <laughs> kind of how did you get to where you are today? You know, there's not too many people that, that lead IT from the perspective that you do now, but, you know, kind of what was your career path? Everyone likes to hear different stories. Well, it is kind of a, a storied past. You know, when, when, you're, when you're my age, you go way back to when, uh, when computerization was all mainframe driven and, and your, your interface device was a uh, key punch machine. Uh, and when I was in college, an undergraduate student, I absolutely hated that, hated it with a passion. You'd go to this, you know, there was a, a key punch room in the college of business and you'd go and, and you'd punch out your 10 or 12 card deck and then you'd have to take it to the data center and run it through and you know look at their clock to see what the turnaround time was gonna be and then come back and pick up your output. And hopefully you had something that was meaningful, but if the first card aired out, then the whole deck got rejected and you had to start all over again. I absolutely detested it. Then um, about six years later, after I'd graduated, I'm in graduate school in a, uh, a night and evening or night and weekend uh, MBA program uh, <clears throat> and was surrounded by a bunch of people from John Deere and uh, uh, Rockwell, a bunch of engineers who uh, uh, were really, really smart and really, really great people. And a lot and most of it was was teamwork, you know, wor working in teams. And I still hated the computer stuff. So I would, uh, and, but I was pretty good at presentation. So I would take the presentation part of the teamwork and uh, then uh, the, the engineers would do the, the, the tough stuff. And that was perfectly all right with me. I didn't have to touch it. Then a little bit later in my career around the, the late seventies, I worked for a division of Gillette. And in about 79 or 80, Gillette and their infinite wisdom decided to buy us a bunch of, uh, buy everybody above a certain level, uh, a PC. And I got an IBM XT with a yellow uh, monitor. A, uh, <laughs> I had 640K of RAM and a 10 megabyte hard drive because God, who could ever need more than 10 million bytes of storage? <laughs> it would just be absolutely impossible to conceive. We had Lotus version 1.1 or 1.2, and the word processor was Multimate, and I have absolutely no clue what version that was. And I, I think Multimate eventually became part of um, WordPerfect, but I'm not positive about that. And you know, it was like, God, do I really want to use this thing? I, you know, I, I've got a master's degree, and I don't want to be a data entry clerk. But we started playing around with it a little bit. And I still vividly remember one time the, the division president, there were four of us that went to a meeting with him. We all had our computers and we all had came in with our output and we were working on a, a scheduling issue. And we came to a, a, a point where we all made our case and none of us agreed. And Chuck, the divisional president, and it was Chuck Dorr, a man that I respect and was a mentor for me for many years, was a, about a six foot three redheaded Irishman who had a voice that sounded like he was talking from his socks. Or you also sometimes thought when Chuck talked that God was talking to you because it was just that kind of resonant voice. And he said, well, gentlemen, and unfortunately it was all men in those days and at, at that particular point in time. 
And he said, I suggest that the uh, four of you go get your heads together and figure out why, you know, why this is so disparate and be back here in 24 hours and tell me what's going on. So we went back and, and uh, the four of us went and we had a meeting in another conference room. And what we discovered was our analysis were all very similar. We just all started with from different points with data. And, you know, some were taking it from some production data. I was taking mine from some marketing data. And it wasn't, you know, it led us to different conclusions. And the true answer was that it was in the combination of the data. So we spent several hours going over that and figuring it out. And then the next morning I came in early and I redid the analysis. And then we met again where we combined the data top and we had another couple of hours of discussion. And all of a sudden we came to a conclusion that we were all happy with. And we went to talk to Chuck that afternoon and presented him and he said, you know, I knew that you four guys were smart enough to figure this out, particularly after all that damn money I spent on those machines, because those those IBM XTs that I was describing to you were about six thousand dollars a piece in those days. Wow! And uh, so, from that point, I uh, uh, became interested, and what really interested me was understanding the data, understanding the structure of the data, and understanding what the data meant. You know, in my mind, there's two things. You know, I, I, I listen interestingly when people talk about self-serve analytics, for example. Um, I think that's a great concept, except those serving themselves have to not only understand the data schema, but they have to understand the tool they're trying to use and with some in the C-suites, that's a tall order, that that's something that they're really not interested in, but you, you really need to do both of that. So from then, uh, Russ, it was, uh, I sold mainframe computer systems for Unisys for a while. And then um, one of my customers hired me and I uh, moved, I went to work for a medical billing and uh, uh, coding and collections company at, as the CIO and because I'd sold them a $1.5 million mainframe computer system and they they needed somebody to run it after they'd spent all that money. And, um, you know, then the, the rest is history from there. And it's it's been it's been a good run um, and I've enjoyed it. I still enjoy it. And I can't see why I wouldn't keep doing it for well into the future, even though I'm 70 years old today. Well, you Not sure today. don't look. You sure don't look 70 years old. That's for darn sure. So uh, I hope I age half as well as you do. <laughs> hey, so let's talk a little bit about where you are now, because as I mentioned on your introduction, you know, HIEs are kind of all over the board in, in the country right now, as far as functionality and delivering on its promise, that kind of stuff. And yours is, is always hallmarked as, as one that seems to be doing well. Tell us a little bit about the, H uh, the Iowa HIE. Health Information Exchange, well, uh, your mission and kind of the services you're providing right now. You know, to really understand the, the Iowa HIE, you've got to have some appreciation for its beginning. It was originally established by the Iowa legislature and embedded in the uh, state code of Iowa in section 135D of, of the Iowa code. Um, but it was started as part of the Iowa Department of Public Health. And it was back in the very early meaningful use dates in 2010, um, and it was part of state government. Um, 
that worked fairly well. Iowa had in the initial founding legislation, the legislation required that it not be a central repository because there were some great privacy concerns in the legislature. So it had to be uh, a federated model uh, for data exchange. Um, I, I don't mean this, this to sound critical, but the, the wheels of state government turn slowly. I think the wheels of federal government turn slowly. And in a technology driven arena, um, sometimes things moving slowly or having to go through an entire legislative session to get an appropriation to make a change that needs to, needs to be made next month uh, can be counterproductive. So the legislature finally saw in 2015 that it needed to privatize it and went through about a two year process to get it privatized then got privatized. We have focused historically from the genesis uh, on being the conduit for uh, public health data. Uh, we have a model that we call the public health utility uh, that is, is a big part of, of what we do. Um, and I was involved in the creation of the original version of IHIN on the technical advisory committee for the state. And then uh, in 2018, uh, was asked by the board to come uh, get involved uh, as the the uh, the CEO. And originally, it was going to be a a uh, short term uh, issue. It was going to you know 90 days, and two and a half years later, I'm still here. What we have focused on is not only is expanding from that public health utility model to one of the things that gets forgotten forgotten is we leap forward quickly to all the things can be done with analytics, with artificial intelligence, and and but the you know first and foremost, I believe that the function of an HIE is to deliver data to the point of care where it can um, assist the uh, uh, in the treatment of the patient, and that to me is huge, and that's something we focus on very heavily. Not just that all the rest of it isn't great; that, it, that our value proposition really comes from all the rest of it. But when you get right down to it. The, the meat of the matter is delivering uh, data necessary to provide for the care of the patient, whether it's helping with uh, prescription drug management programs and the opioid crisis, or whether it's just delivering CCD documents to an emergency room or whatever that, that needs to be, that, that needs to treat a patient, um, it's, it's really, really critical. Um, we have continued to build uh, on the other side of the model. And to that, I also believe that in a, in a state like Iowa, um, where the population, as I, I said earlier, is about 3.2 million, it's very difficult for rural states to build uh, the, the IT stack that's necessary to drive uh, to drive a really rich and fully functional HIT or uh, HIE. So it becomes necessary that we should collaborate across state lines. Uh, and we are working very aggressively on doing that right now with Nebraska. We started last summer with a social determinants of health program that we rolled out across the two states. And we are engaged in uh, with NEHI in Nebraska to, uh, uh, further expand on that. And, and the, the purpose of that is to um, 
to spread the cost uh, across uh, a, a larger population base and, and overall reduce uh, the cost. Now, part of the issue is each state generally needs to deal with uh, the Medicaid agency in that state because the Medicaid agency is the conduit to high-tech funds and to MMIS funds uh, that are really kind of essential. The other thing that's really critical to, to remember from HIEs from state to state is each, the enabling state legislation in each state has a big impact on what the HIE can and cannot do. Uh, some states engage fully and assist in funding the HIE. Uh, others don't. Uh, Iowa has traditionally been conservative on that front, but cooperative. Um, so, you know, our 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 mission and is to collaborate with with our uh, regionally and to continue to develop the services that our uh, participating uh, systems need. We have about, we have quote 91 participation agreements um, and about 677 sites of care in the state of Iowa that are covered by those. So a hospital system that has nine or 10 hospitals and 20 or 30 clinics has one participation agreement, but they have multiple uh, sites that we're providing data for, or providing data from and, and uh, getting data from and providing data to. We've also recognized that, that the world is um, national and global, and we are part of the um, Sequoia Project and the uh, eHealth Gateway. Uh, sharing data with Commonwealth and with care quality. Uh, and we are also part of the uh, uh, patient-centered data home for the Western region and sharing data through that and exchanging uh, uh, data. Good chunk of Iowans tend to go to Arizona area in the wintertime. People ask me, how did somebody right in the middle of the state end up affiliated with the Western region? And there's two answers to that question. But the true answer was because they were the first ones to ask me to join. Uh, and when I thought about it, and then I looked at the demographics, uh, you know, it, it made sense to to what where where Iowans traveled to uh, in snowbird time. So, I don't know. That's kind of a long-winded way of uh, uh, of answering your question, and I apologize for it taking so long. But that's kind of it. So, so you mentioned it a little bit there. You know. You know, and maybe you don't need to even go into it more, maybe a different question than, than I was going to ask. I was going to ask about kind of the sustainability of, and why there's so much variance between the HIEs, but I think you already explained that. I guess, what do you see the future? Do you think we're going to see a massive consolidation of the HIEs, or will we ever eventually see a real true federated model where there's really kind of one exchange system across uh, across the entire country? What, what do you think the future looks like? I, I think that ultimately we have to get to a model, and I absolutely loathe the comparison of healthcare to banking, but I'm going to use it. You know, your ATM card, my ATM card can go any place in the country and any place in the world, and it's going to work. And we can get money, we can deposit money, we can for the most part, we can we can do pretty much whatever we need to do, or we can do it, you know, we can deposit money from an app on our phone. We got to get to that kind of, of uh, uh, 
integration so that so that data can go wherever it needs to go. Now, the reason I loathe that comparison is I think that comparing it to banking oversimplifies it. Now, healthcare is immensely more complex. If you get right down to it, banking is really about debits and credits. And um, where healthcare has just got so many more things. And, and, you know, I know my friends that are bankers would, would disagree that they have regulatory issues and all that kind of stuff that we do. But I just, I just see us as being different. So I do see, I do see the migration toward, um, or the movement toward more um, national and focused so that the data can go wherever it needs to go to take care of the patient. Still though, when you get down to it, you know, 90 plus percent of healthcare is pretty much local, you know, local to the community, local to the state that you're in. Um, so there, there is a need for strength in numbers within each given jurisdiction, but there is a, an opportunity to, to partner with other um, uh, similarly functioning organizations uh, to help with the sustainability model by spreading out some of the costs. I mean, you know, I, I'm in Iowa. You, you don't get data scientists aren't a dime a dozen in Iowa. They're not a dime a dozen anywhere. But, you know, when I think about it from our perspective, if I was going to hire a data scientist, one, could I find one? Two, could I afford them? Three, could I keep them? And four, could I sustain that? And those are all tough questions. But over a, a six or seven state region and, you know, and, and taking a population base from 3.2 million to say 8, 10, 11 million, the, the law of large numbers starts to play in your favor just a little bit. Uh, I think that I think that the answer to your question is I think you will see as far into the future as I can envision that we're going to continue to look to expand the exchange nationally. There is, you know, I, I, we belong to the strategic uh, health information exchange collaborative. And I think there's like 81 HIEs in the country today some of whom are very mature, some of whom are not very mature. Steve's personal opinion is that there is, is room for consolidation in there and that, that for the industry, that would be a good thing. It's a little bit like hospitals forming systems to drive economies of scale into the, into the business, uh, particularly where technology-related things are concerned. Um, you know, I read here just in the last few days where uh, Stark provisions have been revised to allow sharing of, of um, uh, cybersecurity. Huge issue. And, you know, I'm, I'm my background, the first hospital I was in was a critical access hospital in Southeast Iowa. You know, we had uh, $60 million in, in uh, uh, net patient revenue. Um, you know, so, but our, our IT staff was six people. And now admittedly, you know, you're a 25 bed hospital, but we had the same range of, of, of issues that we faced just with a, a uh, lower depth of resource. And I think the same thing applies. To, and, and so over the years, hospitals have affiliated with larger systems. And, you know, I spent a couple of years with the University of Iowa implementing Epic and their, their critical access hospital. We did that eight times in two years, and I would make a very strong recommendation to anybody that listens to this, don't try to do that in two years. Um, it, it, it worked, but it was a pretty big task. 
you know, give yourself another year or two to get all eight of them done. But my point is that consolidation is going to continue and the same thing is true of HIE. So I think rather than hunker down in your own bunker and say, we're going to find a way to make this work with just us, uh, that, that the, the vision really needs to be what is in the best interest of the patient at the end of the day and how do we best get there? And if that means affiliating with other groups, if that means, uh, uh, you know, somebody like me no longer being the CEO of IHIN, but uh, uh, a, a member of a team that's, that's uh, on a larger group or heck even retired, um, that's okay, because it, it's, it's really the, in my opinion, the right direction to head. So um, given what's going on right now, we've got the surge going on nationally. Uh, you've probably got it mostly in your, in your, mar your larger marketplaces, as you mentioned. But we've got the, I'm just going to call it the promise of this vaccine, and it's going to have to be distributed and tracked. And I've got to talk to a lot of our Chime members. And, you know, admittedly, they're all a little bit, you know, confused on what their role is going to be, not with the surge, because they know they got to take care of patients. But, you know, this vaccine things, it, there's not a whole lot of really clear guidance at this point. So I guess fundamentally, what do you think your role is going to be as, as part of helping coordinate and, and monitor or even track the data or exchange the data for this vaccine as it rolls out, uh, hopefully very soon? Well, that's a great question, Russ. Um, you know, Iowa has uh, an immunization registry that we that we and the vast, vast majority of our uh, participants funnel their data through us to the registration to the um, uh, immunization registry. But the back end analytic tools of that are the states. And I don't think I'm talking out of school when I say some of those tools have been stressed to the max. They're old and they're not, um, they weren't originally designed with a, a pandemic in mind. Even our lab reporting system, we went from a state required lab, reportable labs from, you know, usually about six or 700 a day statewide to about eight or 9,000 a day now. And the, the, the systems that are 15, 16, 17 years old that are the back end case management systems that the state has in place today are somewhat, are, are really not, are having, are struggling to, uh, to keep up with that. They're, they're, they're doing a lot of work to try to make that um, uh, work, that, that work. So I, I, I think, you know, we're gonna, you're absolutely right. I, I draw the analogy Remember when Shingrex came out and it was a shingles vaccine and it was really uh, propagated for people who were over the age of 65, but it was a two dose vaccine. And the problem was if you went someplace to get it, when whatever it was, three, three, four, six weeks later, you were supposed to go get the second dose. And if you went to your pharmacist, pharmacist and had it done, you may have had the first dose, but may not, may not be able to get the second dose. I remember vividly in my own personal case, uh, my uh, PCP administered the first dose, and then they put the second dose on reserve for me. They had, you know, they they kept track, and they only gave a first dose to somebody that they were going to hold a second dose for, and I was able to get both. I'm a little bit concerned that we're going to face that on the uh, on the. Uh, uh, 
COVID vaccine because it's a two dose, but both of them that are about ready to come to market are two dose. And keeping track of all that is going to be kind of interesting. And then determining whatever the, I understand that today there's a meeting at the CDC where they're going to talk at length about the, the policy, distribution policy and processes and who gets it first and all that kind of stuff. But it's going to be kind of interesting. And I'm not sure that anybody is quite ready and prepared for how they're going to account for that because they don't know what to account for. But I think we're all going to get, whether it's the CIO in a hospital or an HIE is going to get called upon to do everything they possibly can. For us, those VCU transactions are flowing through us. And we can either pump those into our database and, and uh, uh, do some, some uh, analysis on them, or we can share them with the state, which is our contractual obligation to do is just pass them through to the state. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And I don't think anybody's got, at least in Iowa, there's not an answer to that question yet. So you mentioned earlier some of the stuff about policies, and you mentioned the one about being able to, with Stark, being able to do some security. But there's some other big ones that are that are hitting the, the block now. We got a little time extension on this, but really about information sharing and the information blocking rules that came out. You know, obviously, you're the you're the antithesis, the opposite of information blocking. Your whole role is to make sure information's flowing. But love to hear your perspective on these the requirements of information sharing. But just as importantly, you know, any experiences you've had or thoughts on on information blocking. Well, uh, let's let's deal with the information blocking thing first. Um, the Sequoia Group had a multi-session boot camp that, uh, you know, two hours, there was a two hour, I think there were six two hour sessions and then a one hour session following that, that what they called office hours where you could ask additional questions. And the takeaway is the information blocking rule, in my opinion, has an awful lot of questions that remain unanswered and it's awfully complicated. Um, the when you get into the exceptions um and there's eight of them i believe uh they're very nuanced and and um the in that boot camp you know one of the conclusion was a lot of this is going to be determined by um uh, uh litigation you know it, 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 we're, we're going to get court interpretations of what some of this means now I can sort of I really do understand it from a from a uh, uh, an EHR vendor's point of view, from a hospital's point of view. To whom do you give? You know, it, it pretty much says you got to give it to anybody that wants it, any actor that necessarily wants it. One of Steve's greatest personal concerns is that when you release that information and it goes to a uh, entity that is not a covered entity or a business associate, what happens to the HIPAA privacy and security protections around that data? Now, I know that if the patient directs you to, you know, I want you to send my information to this, you know, to this source or this, this repository or this app on my phone, um, that it's at the patient's request. My fear is that this patient really understand what are the risk that they might be taking. And not that that's a reason not to do it, but I'm not sure that, because I, you know, I do believe the more information we put into the patient's hands, 
the better off we are. But then the flip side of that is my mother is 97 or 95, excuse me. And she wants no part of that. And she wants no part of anybody besides my sister and I having her medical information. And so she's not going to do that. But, and she, 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 we're her designated people to look at her, her portal, my sister and I. Um, but it is an extremely, extremely sensitive and complicated area. The penalties are almost draconian. Uh, hopefully there will be some, some uh, uh, reason used in, in assessing those because, you know, a million and a half dollar penalty for a unintended consequence of, of failing to document or, or meet one of the exceptions when you withhold the data is an important thing. Simply put, I think philosophically, if we all approach this, that we should uh, share data wherever we can and with, with what, whatever we believe is, is being done safely. But when I think about if I was a, an Epic or a Cerner or anybody else, and there quite literally could be hundreds, if not thousands of, of vendors who want to access my APIs and pull data. And then what about when they want to get to the point and it's gotta happen that they're gonna wanna put data back into the EHR? What do you do then? And there are some things that, that um, still have to be resolved. Um, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be very, very interesting. Then when I look at the conditions of participation and the sharing of, of, uh, of, for example, ADT information, I think that's a great idea. Uh, but the question is how, and the question is what's going to constitute a qualifying, um, uh, sharing of that data and, and with whom do you share it? We're, you know, we have been working to build a, uh, uh, a results distribution system to, uh, out of our HIE platform to send results from, you know, bigger medical centers to PCPs, and, and that's working quite well. But the ADT side is a little bit different and some of the requirements that are there. So, you know, there are some easy solutions, some of the uh, uh, alerting systems like uh, patient ping or uh, collective medical uh, uh, are have have uh, qualifying solutions that would meet the requirement of, of the ADT thing and most people particularly anybody engaged in a value-based contract today are using some of those alerting systems already um, you know it's it, it, it's going to be uh, it's, it's going to be a challenge and the question is going to be not, in, in my opinion, from everybody's perspective, from the provider's perspective, is not, do we do it? But with how do we do it? And, and if I'm a, a PCP, I would think I would prefer that I'm gonna get that data through a single source that's gonna be doing the distribution of that as opposed to I've got to subscribe to five or six different ways to get that data from depending on who's sending it. Uh, I think that's going to be a tall challenge. I know in Iowa, there is discussion already about uh, collaborate the, the, the uh, entities collaborating to their providers collaborating on, on a solution. 
by default, the alerting system in Iowa was adopted in 2018. The one we're using was adopted in 2018 and by a large health system and the rest of the health systems in the state followed suit pretty quickly. So it's the de facto standard is uh, patient pain. Uh, that doesn't mean it's the only one or well, it doesn't mean it, it, it's the only one available. It means it's the one that Iowans have, have gravitated to. And I think we're gonna follow a similar path to that on the, on the ADT notification, whether it's patient pain or something else that they're gonna to gravitate to one area to solve that problem uh, of having you know, multiple sources to interact with. So, so one of the biggest challenges right now is cybersecurity. We, you know, we just had this big threat that was just uh, dealt with for the, I say dealt with probably the best way to describe it because I sure don't think we defeated it. Um, this, this concept of the ability to deal with, with so many cybersecurity threats and you being the main pipe of so much exchange, how are you approaching cybersecurity and helping your partners with cybersecurity? Well, if there's anything that keeps me awake at night, that's it. Um, you know, it, it, it's such a challenge when you, in, in, in the class I'm teaching at the university, uh, it's on health IT, surprisingly. Uh, and this week's lecture tomorrow night is on privacy and security. And we were, we're uh, you know, it, taking kind of a semi-deep dive into the RIUK, um, R-Y-U-K, ransomware attacks have been going on and you know you you, you just it, it is so very very difficult i think the, the core issue is you can you need to build one needs to remember that security is administrative physical and technical i think we do our best job in the technical arena. We have tools in place our, and where, where we, you know, we have tools available, let's put it that way, that can do a pretty good job and, and the industry is doing a good job or the best job they possibly can of trying to keep up with the changes that are going on. On the physical side, I, I see that very wild, widely by facility. It's amazing to walk into some hospitals or clinics and having you know computers up and running and in areas where you know, the public walks by and somebody could do something. You know, I, they haven't really dealt with the with the physical side, but the administrative side I think is is probably the the biggest problem. And I think we all know that our biggest threat is our people unknowingly doing something. And I know that I have an individual who on, on my staff who got a phishing uh, 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 message on her personal email account and actually followed it. And it took over her email account, her personal email account. And you know that's how payloads get get uh, delivered largely into um, uh, provider entities. You know, if you, I'd hate to be Vermont right now, um, you know. So 
you know, cybersecurity is, is um, I don't think there's anything that we're facing today that's any more important. What angers me or incenses me to anger, I guess, is that there are evil people who in the midst of a global pandemic would knowingly in pursuit of money, illegally gotten money, attack the ability of the healthcare community to uh, take care of people at a time globally when we're, you know, when it's a crisis. That maybe it shouldn't surprise me, but it, it I, I find that I, I find that immensely distressing. I it it depresses me or it upsets me that 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 would even happen. I I don't. You know, I, I, unfortunately, ill-begotten gains with with funds are one of those things that that you know motivate bad actors. And so there's money in it. I understand that, uh, but there's you know there's a crisis there. I think on on that, you know, from our personal perspective, from our our uh, IHIN's uh, perspective. Um, we partner very closely with our, our all of our um, uh, technology vendors in our tech stack, and we apply. You know, we use all of the security tools that not all. I mean, millions of them, but you know, we use security tools to address a lot of the issues and try to build that that technical security as best we can. Um, the education of our people on the administrative side is something that never stops, and I, even as much of it as we do, I'm not sure that we do enough. Um, and the physical side of it, but when, when we sent everybody home last uh, March, to be honest with you, I, you know, I, the working from home thing has worked out really well, except do you really have any idea what the physical environment is like uh, of, of all of those employees where they're, you know, and I find that a little bit unnerving, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, you know, you, you mentioned something earlier that you know, I know, and I know you know very well from not only your past but who you support today. You know, the, these security issues do not discriminate based on size. They don't only attack the University of Iowa. They yeah. attack a little small hospital, critical access, just as hard, maybe harder, because they know they're more vulnerable in small and rural locations. And rural and small doesn't necessarily mean rural all the time. Sometimes it's urban and small, small physician offices, sure. small whatever. They, they just do not discriminate. It's such a horrific thing that we should have, that we just waste resources on that we shouldn't even have to deal with, but we do. Oh, without question. And, you know, <laughs> I remember in my days at Henry County Health Center, the critical access hospital in Iowa, there are places the University of Iowa being a great example, who have a security team that was six times the size of my IT team at, at Henry County. And when I think about my physician's office, for example, the, which was independent, my PCP, until about 12 to 15 months ago, uh, where they that, then they lined up with a hospital, but they were trying to do it on their own. And they just you know, whether they do it with contracted resources, you know, they just don't have the resources to apply to it. And they're, they're extremely vulnerable. I think they get that today. Um, 
but it, it's, it, it, it's a very, very difficult thing to deal with. And, and the fact that you hit the nail right on the head, Russ, we are spending resources and dollars on things that should be necessary, shouldn't be necessary, uh, but they are. And, you know, the, the internet has been a blessing in many, many regards. We're doing this um, uh, podcast over the internet today, but the internet is what, connecting all these computers together is what's made all this possible. Now, certainly the benefits exceed the, the, um, the risks, but the risks are still there and they're growing at an ever increasing rate. You know, I know when I was from the class I'm teaching and doing some research on the RIAC virus, originally that was thought to have come out of North Korea. And now the current theory is it's coming out of Russia. But the point is the attackers are everywhere. And, you know, it, 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 it's kind of a, a, a really a frightening situation. I know a security expert, uh, a guy by the name of Evan Franson from um, Minneapolis, and he, if you remember back the Target, uh, Target uh, stores attack on their point of sale system, um, he, uh, Evan did the, uh, the analysis and, and uh, the, the root cause analysis and, and led the mitigation efforts uh, for Target back when that happened. And he said something to me that resonated a long time ago. He said, you know, a determined attacker that chooses to target you, no pun intended with target stores, uh, with just commonly available tools that they can probably get for nothing on the internet, if they're determined enough, they can probably find a, a vulnerability to break your, uh, to breach you. And that's scary. Uh, and and the the tools, you know, the the, the things that happen today um, are are really really frightening, and it just it just proffers, you know, I would guess early on in my CIO career, I'm going well. Heck, we got user codes and passwords; we're pretty safe. Um, and now, you know, the the amount of time I spent thinking about security in the very early days versus the amount of time I spend thinking about security today are entirely different things. I did have the experience, I spent a couple of years uh, at a two hospital system in Pennsylvania um, and they had been breached before I got there. And they, I went and I didn't realize that, I, you know, I, I was, it was kind of a, a consulting engagement that ended up being two years, but the, the bottom line turned out that um, we went through an OCR investigation from, uh, and we, we dealt with the Philadelphia Office of Civil Rights during that investigation. And we were on the wall of shame from CMS and all that good stuff and bad stuff, I guess you'd call it. And what's frightening about all that is, it, is it's a very nuanced, um, thing and our ours was our breach was a stolen laptop that was police report all that kind of stuff but it wasn't encrypted uh and the the uh, uh, security risk analysis had stated from the year before stated that all the laptops would become encrypted and only 17 out of 500 got done uh so 
it's just a never ending battle. And, and it's not a topic that any of us really likes to think about, but it's a topic that none of us in a position of responsibility in the, in the HIT community cannot think about. Well, Stephen, our time is, is coming to a rapid close here today. Um, maybe one last pearl of wisdom. You've done this maybe a few more years than some, most of our uh, Chime members and listeners, just a couple. You know, one last pearl of wisdom to, to leave with them. Well, I think that a hard lesson for me to learn over the years I got early in my career from a boss that I didn't particularly like. But he pounded into us that a smart man knows what he doesn't know. And that would apply to a smart woman knows what she doesn't know. And I admittedly went through years of my career when I didn't think that was true. But I think that the, the most important thing is to remember there's a lot more that you don't know than you do know, even though you know a lot. And to remain open-minded. And as you get older, there's a tendency to hunker down in, in, your, in your comfort zone. And the most important thing I can say is don't do that. Stay open to what's going on around you because the world, it is a changing, whether you like it or whether you don't. And if you're going to stay in the game, you need to be adaptable and sensitive to what's going on around you, which is why I love teaching. It's, uh, you know, it, it helps me stay fresh. You know, I, this morning I got up early and I read some papers that were due this week, and that's very invigorating to me to get different perspectives from uh, from physicians that are taking this course and and from a lot of people. So stay open, keep learning, and don't ever and remember, there's a lot more you don't know than you do. Wow. Well, Stephen, it's always a great pleasure to hear from you, talk with you, share with you. Uh, but especially today, a special thank you for all you're doing for the great folks of Iowa and the, in the area there. Uh, just never forget the care, the work you're doing really does deliver direct patient care. And, and that is, in the end, what we're really here to do. So again, thank you for all you are, what you mean to chime, mean to our entire IT community. You're, uh, you're one of our great stars. Thank you. Thanks, Russ. I really appreciate it. Well, and thank you to our listeners for listening to this episode of our Digital Health Leaders podcast. As always, you can visit us at our website, chimecentral.org forward slash media, or on Apple or Spotify for all of our other podcasts as well. For now, especially during these tough times, take care, stay home if you can. If you can't wear your mask, be safe and God bless.